Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey guys, welcome back again. The girls tease me. I got to say something different than welcome back, but like, I'm happy that you came back. So hi. Today I have a incredibly special guest on that 
Truth be told, I have fangirled her for a while because I think what she does is magical, but I have social anxiety and am afraid to reach out to people through their messages sliding into their DMs. I remember the phrase. But as it would happen, um, the one and only Amy Graham of Graham Speech Therapy from Colorado Springs, I'm also the famous individual behind the Bjorn speech decks for lateralization and cycles. Y'all, there's a reason I don't treat this because I could barely say the name of them. Um, I have wanted to have her on as a guest for an incredibly long time. And I was too afraid to ask. And lo and behold, back last fall, we were at the Mississippi Speech Language Hearing Association Conference, which if you haven't been, they throw quite the party. And I literally ran into her when I was coming around a corner and I was like, oh my God, it's you. And then shaking like a leaf in a really cute outfit with lemons on it, I asked her to be on the podcast. And I looked like Sunshine had barfed in Mississippi because it was such a bright outfit, but there I was. And y'all, she said, yes, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And yeah, so Asha pandemic, everybody getting the crud. A couple months later, we made it and even overcame me cocking up the uh, time zone difference. So Amy, thank you for braving all of the things and coming on. I was trying not to laugh out loud before you actually introduced me, but that was a fantastic introduction. I loved it. <laughs> and I remember that outfit, by the way, at Misha. I thought it was the cutest ever. I want those earrings. Oh my God, Etsy. I Etsy all the earrings. And there's this killer spot in downtown Columbia called La Roque, L-A-R-O-C, no, Q-U-E, again, not the spelling person. And they custom make those and I hit her up on clearance. So I get them all off season for like the next season. And yeah, so La Roque, thank you for dressing me. <laughs> but yes, hi, but you're here. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Okay. So Really truthfully, I'm just kind of dying to know, how did you decide that you wanted to like focus in speech sound disorders and the phonemic alphabet? Because I got to be honest, that like I barely became an SLP because of that thing. <laughs> well, ironically, I became an SLP because of it. You know, I, I probably 99.9% .9 of the population thought that's all SLPs did. And so I legitimately got into this area because I thought that's all we did, <laughs> you know, and then you get into your grad school or even undergrad program. You're like, oh, wow, it's a big scope of practice. Okay, well, maybe I'll enjoy some other parts of this field. But really, I got into it because when I was a child, my sister, my younger sister, who she's about three and a half years younger than I am, she had a speech sound disorder. And so she was, she went to a university clinic <laughs> and I got dragged along with her as the big sister doing my homework um, in the waiting room. And then she had to go to a private practice. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a cool office. They had a big fish tank. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this could be a possibility one day for me. This sounds, looks kind of like a cool place to work. And really that's kind of where the seeds were sown um, was as a child. And then, you know, went to Cal State Fullerton in California, Orange County, got into the program. And actually I thought, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but I was halfway through my undergrad program when I discovered that you have to have a master's degree to do this. So I thought, oh man, more school. Okay. 
So apparently I did not do my homework. <laughs> I was not the type A person that I am today, apparently back then. Uh, but that's how I got into it, uh, into the field. But really the speech sound disorders, that's all I thought we did. And so that's why I get into it, because I really wanted to do that. I wanted to help kids fix their S's and their R's. And lo and behold, you know, 20 some odd years later, I, that's kind of what I'm doing. So my kid brother was born with a cleft lip and did not talk till he was four. And they diagnosed him with dysarthria because my stepmom had gotten electrocuted when she was pregnant. What? What? She was changing out a light, the toggle switch. And the wire was live and she was like seven months pregnant. And so my best friend from ballet, her mom was like the only SLP in town. And her last name was Krasansky. I don't, worst name ever for a speech pathologist, right? And so like we, they're in ballet, like, you know, my stepmom took me and she's analyzing my kid brother, like, you know, before and after point class and like, long story short, that's how I found out about being an SLP. And then I, the very first dysphagia class, man, I was hooked. Like, that's it. I, they put a modified up and I was like, and I'm done. This is my life. <laughs> like, And now, but like now it's really embarrassing because people will give me like SLP gear stuff and it'll say my name on it and the phonemic alphabet. And like, I won't even recognize my name. And I'm like, thank you. I'm like, I don't know what you said. Uh, okay. But back to the topic at hand, we're talking today about differential diagnosis, which not really sure. And differential diagnosis in my world is like, what is the main etiology behind like this, this, and this? But as it pertains to speech sound disorders, not really sure where we're going. And then we're going to talk about treatment. So what do you mean by differential diagnosis? Well, Essentially, it's pretty much very similar. Um, we're talking about the underlying deficit because I think, and this is commonly misunderstood by SLPs. And I, you know, and I used to say this too when we refer to any speech sound disorder, we just kind of say the word, you know, artic. It's either language or it's artic. And really, that's inaccurate. Speech sound disorders is an umbrella term for a host of different types of speech errors, speech deficits that kids have that can be actually due to differing underlying causes. And we will treat, or we should treat, each of those types of speech sound disorders or those subcategories essentially differently because there are different evidence. There's different evidence for different types of interventions um, that should be matched to the deficit. So that's what I mean by speech sound disorders um, when we talk about differential diagnosis. So like, for example, we have kind of, I think of it as almost this sliding scale or really a spectrum of underlying deficits based on whether the issue is more motoric. So is this a motor issue? And, it, you know, we think of that in terms of apraxia and dysarthria, but really, oh, I got a question. Yes. I wholeheartedly do not believe in the diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech because of the patients that I treat. When I get a patient that they suspect like CAS, when we actually, there's always another deficit like hemiparesis or, I mean, full-blown deficits and um, like paralysis or there's um, gait ataxia. And then we send them in for an MRI and they find an old infarct, probably happened in utero or shortly after birth or 
we get him to a geneticist and then we find like a neurogenetic condition that was so like but my population set is skewed so like is CAS a thing or is that am I wrong I mean like what do you think so CAS is a thing but we have there are different etiologies as well too most kids okay so here's the thing let's first define it right when we're talking about childhood apraxia of speech, we're talking about where the deficit is of motor planning and programming. So these kids have difficulty learning or carrying out the complex sequenced movements that are necessary for intelligible speech. So the deficit is not dysarthria, it's not a weakness of the muscles, right? It's a deficit of programming of motor planning. And there are certain features that we can tease out in order to differentially diagnose CAS from other types of speech sound disorders. But here's what I have seen, and tell me if this is true for you. I think there's so much misunderstanding because it is a fairly rare disorder. I feel like that label is slapped on kids when they are preverbal, which is if you have a child who is preverbal or they don't have a lot of speech yet, or they're so young that they cannot, uh, or maybe they're, they're not unable to participate in the type of assessment that we do in order to differentiate it from other deficits. If that's the case, we can't differentially diagnose that. So to me, there are often kids who are way, 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 way overdiagnosed because I will find that maybe a medical professional, maybe a neurologist, whoever has put that diagnosis on there, whether that be for insurance reasons, reimbursement reasons, whatever, just because here's this nonverbal, preverbal child, and we don't have another answer. So we're going to, we're going to call them apraxic and then come to find out that's not the issue. That's not the underlying issue. The older they get, the, you know, the more you find out what the underlying deficit is with their, whether it's language or a different type of speech deficit. Um, so I see that a lot. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, even under among SLPs, because it is fairly rare. So you're not going to see it a whole lot, um, but you're going to see it among, you know, if you have a typical caseload at a school, for example, you might have one or two kids who have apraxia that may or may not be diagnosed. So if you have, you know, if you're at a typical school and you've got 20 kids on your caseload with that label, I would highly suspect that they're probably misdiagnosed. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the diagnosis, which is why probably what you're talking about. Yes, because when I get, there's an outfit locally that if a child has Down syndrome, they automatically diagnose the child with Wrong. CAS. Thank you. Wait, 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 wait. Say that again for the people in the back. Wrong. Wrong. That is not a given. And um, even autism, that is not a given. If a child has autism, that doesn't always mean that it's apraxia at the root of their speech deficit. It could be. They could both absolutely could, but we have to be able to differentially, here we go, here's a topic, differentially diagnose the particular speech sound disorder in order to say that. Yes. So they call me in because little one needs an AAC device because of the severity of the delay, or we have PFD, dysphagia going on, and- if we have a bolus coming nasal regurgitation and shooting out the nose or something of this nature, or if I'm in doing my eval and I'm noticing, you know, signs, symptoms of VPI, you know, I'm going down the train tracks of flaccid dysarthria. So I tend to refer out to, um, shout out to the amazing Melissa Montiel and um, Stephanie Shank, who are the craniofacial VPI gurus in South Carolina at Medical University of South Carolina. Ladies, 
thank you for what you do. I send them down there and Melissa texts me afterwards and she was like, how do you always get the kid that has flaccid dysarthria? This is not even VPI. They find you. And I'm like, I know, dude. But again, my population is not a typical caseload. Also, you said an average caseload or in the school of like 20. And then it took me a second to mean the like 20 kids on an average caseload of like 60 to 80. I was processing that as you said that. And I was like, in what world do we have 20 kids on a kid? But like, I'm with you now. I processed. I should define my terms. Listen, I've been in schools where I might, I walked in and my caseload was over a hundred. So yeah, I, I no, definitely. That would be my dream caseload in a school would be 20. Ay, we need so much advocacy, but that's a conversation for another day. So how do you go about, like, do you have like, what tools do you use to tease out to get a differential diagnosis? And do you, what interprofessional practice partners do you refer out to? Because like, I know who I send to, but I feel like our IPP members are probably different. Maybe the same. Yes. So there are so many things when you're talking about differentially diagnosing a speech sound disorder, because there are, you know, typically, even in a school, you get a kid, you think, here's just, you know, here, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but just our tick. And you think, okay, I'll give the Goldman Fristo or the Arizona or whatever, you know, your articulation assessment is, and you stop there. And you're just, you know, looking over their errors, their specific errors, and you stop there. That is not enough. So there are so many other things. And really for me, it all begins with the case history. So there are so many red flags for things like myofunctional disorders, which is probably another topic for another day too. But I see kids, you know, that have red flags for those types of issues. I see kids when we have a, a get a really thorough case history, we can see red flags for apraxia. There are actually, um, some preliminary articles or journal, you know, journal articles out there where they've actually looked at kids who were later identified as having apraxia because you have to have enough speech uh, in order to analyze. Um, But then they looked retrospectively at videos of what these kids were doing as infants and toddlers. And they found some consistencies there in some of the things that they were um, observing. So I asked parents in my case history, like, you know, were they a really quiet child when they were, when they were little? Because preliminary diagnostic indicators of apraxia as infants are no recognizable consonants by the time they're one, lack of onset of babbling, you know, like maybe, f- I think it's five or fewer consonants by the time they're two, lack of velar consonants, um, those kinds of things. So there's some things that we can ask parents about, you know, what their child sounded like when they were younger, um, when it comes to those kinds of things. But I ask about family history. Um, I ask about birth history. I want to know, was there an unusual or traumatic pregnancy or birth, right? Because that can help kind of direct us like, okay, maybe there, there could be something neurological going on too. Um, look at medical history. And for me, for speech sound disorders, I always want to know about feeding and eating history. I want to know about our are there any upper airway issues? Are they snoring at night? Is there nasal congestion? Are there allergies going on? Do they have kind of difficulty breathing through their nose? History of hearing loss, all those kinds of things can help us. I mean, this is just the case history to really help tease out some things. If there are fine or gross motor deficits as well too, like if there's kind of a a global dyspraxia or apraxia going on, you know, what used to be called limapraxia, that kind of thing, you know, are there issues like that? But basically, 
I start with the, with the case history, because if I start to see some little red flags that pop up that make me think, oh, you know, this child has a really major upper airway issue. Um, we may need to refer out to maybe an ENT, maybe an allergist to kind of check some of these things out. So you talked about, you know, referrals. There's a whole host of referrals that you can make based on what you find in your assessment. <clears throat> but I always start with a case history if I can at all, if at all possible. And I worked in the schools um, and it's, I was not always able to talk to parents, but you know, I was working in the schools before email was a big thing. So that's how long ago <laughs> I was doing that. So now we can email parents and get them their case history forms. But one of the other big things that I always look at too, that can help us differentiate, especially among the different motor speech issues are, you know, your oral neck exam, your oral facial exam. So, you know, going down my, and I have an oral facial exam that I use that I kind of created myself because I didn't, I couldn't find a really good, easy to use kind of checklist style exam that I could quickly administer and, you know, take down what I was seeing. Um, so I just made one myself, but I look at things like, <laughs> I know that's kind of what I mean. Sorry. That's how I wrote a book. I was like, I'm so sick of this. So like, I need, I need some information. So I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but mine put 20 pounds on my figure. So, I mean, I feel like the checklist may not have caused that. So, like, go team. <laughs> right. <laughs> Same. But, like, I'll, literally, I think every one of my products that I sell is I made for myself first because I just, you know, if, if you see a hole in the market, like, I need to make this for me. So, you know, and then you find out that, oh, my gosh, other SLPs want this too. So, yeah, it's, it's a great way to start. But, you know, looking at the oral facial exam, too, and looking at how kids complete motor tasks with their lips, their tongue, looking at the structures, like you said, oh, my gosh, sometimes we are the first people that ever notice things going on in that child's mouth. And I'm always shocked where I will find things and I'm like, has this child's been to every well child visit? How has this not been discovered? <laughs> I caught a first grader with a bifurcated tongue tie like a snake. And he was in first grade. And I was like, mom, have you ever noticed this? And she goes, yeah, he's always been like that. And I was like, so, okay. That might be why we can't say our R's. Possibly. Your tongue has a lot to do with articulation. So yeah. But I mean, once upon a time, I started out on the public schools a lifetime ago. And I did that while I went to grad school. But like, that was, again, that was a whole lot of hair dye jobs and Botox ago, but I digress. Continue. Sorry, ma'am. <laughs> no, but it's true. Sometimes we are the only people or the first people to notice things going on in that child's mouth. So, you know, look at the palate. And when I deal with articulation disorders, and when I'm talking articulation, I'm talking about those kids with the, that tend to have the errors at the phonetic level. And that's what I mean. Um, basically, these are the kids who have those residual speech sound errors those kids who have a lisp, a lateral lisp, like they, you know, they're not like your preschooler who has these phonological errors where, man, they're really unintelligible at first just because they're all of their K's or T's, all of their G's or D's. But, you know, once you get to know them, you're like, oh, okay, I, I get it. There's a pattern going on here. There's a pretty clear pattern to their speech and those phonological error patterns is what they're producing. Um, but when I'm, when we say articulation, I'm not talking about phonology. Those are two different types of speech sound disorders. One is phonological, more linguistic, and kind of at that language level. And one is more motoric. If a child has a lisp, 
I'm going to treat that differently than a child who is stopping the S sound. They both are having trouble with S, but they're two different underlying deficits. So that's what I'm basically talking about when, you know, and I kind of, you know, regressed a little bit talking about differential diagnosis, but that is really, we have to differentiate among those two and among, you know, differentiate apraxia from that or differentiate dysarthria. And if you're seeing those, you know, the weakness in the muscles for other things like feeding, then okay, that's something that we need to consider when we look at their speech errors as well too. But that oral mech exam can really help you kind of uncover some of those things. So like if we're talking apraxia, I'm looking at if I'm going to detect any kind of a non-speech oral apraxia. Like are they having trouble with any type of non-speech movements? Do they have to have a model or can they do it? If I say, hey, pucker your lips, stick your tongue out, smile really big. Is that easy for them to do or do they need a model? I have had a 10-year-old who came to me because they couldn't quite figure out what was going on. She wasn't really understandable. She was in the school district kind of getting, um, she had trouble with R. So that's kind of what her, what kind of therapy she was getting, articulation therapy, right? She's 10, she has this residual sound error. But if you listen to connected speech, it was so just kind of jumbled and we could, they couldn't figure out what the deal was. Garbly goop. Yes, totally. Very inconsistent errors. And you're like, what is going on? Her errors were really inconsistent. And so with her, when we did the oral mech exam, I told her, and think of this, this is a 10 year old, stick your tongue out, smile really big, move your tongue side to side. She told me, she's like, that is really hard for me to do. Oh, wow. Interesting. She could like her strength was perfect. Her range of motion was great, but that's motor planning. That volitional movement of my brain is telling my tongue to move out, move side to side. She told me that was really hard for her to do. So when I gave her a model, it was much easier, but we went on to find out after I did a motor speech assessment, which is, sorry, I gave it away. (laughs) The motor speech assessment, which is how we differentiate a dynamic motor speech assessment, which is how we differentiate apraxia from other speech sound disorders. She has apraxia. This poor kid who's been not progressing in speech was not diagnosed appropriately. And so the intervention, the articulation type intervention was not improving her speech at all. So we had to switch, switch and go ahead and, you know, go through the whole, you know, different way to treat her. So anyway, I think I went on like four different rabbit trails, but. Yeah, no, but I hung with you. Also, I'm curious because we just had Angie Neal on. I love Angie Neal. And we were talking about like literacy and language. And we've also had Dr. Kelly Farquharson on um, talking about, yes, talking, I mean, reading dyslexia, speech sound disorders, like all similar veins, but each one of y'all have a different thread on it, I guess. But, but what Angie was talking about was these are the kids that have literacy component to it. So I'm just kind of wondering that particular child, did she have difficulty with like English language arts courses? Yes. So many kids, what we know now, regardless of the type of speech sound disorder you have, I mean, it could be a single sound error or it could be apraxia. These kids are at much greater risk for difficulty learning to read and literacy issues. Even apraxia. In fact, it's very rare that apraxia is the only diagnosis or even the only educational diagnosis. Often these kids will definitely have difficulty, not always, but a lot of times they'll have difficulty with literacy for sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's this, 
like I said, it's this spectrum almost of deficits that they play into one another. Because if a child has difficulty producing the motor sound, right, this movement for particular speech sounds, do you think they're also going to have difficulty, you know, sounding out, yeah, understanding that this letter has this sound, and if they can't produce that sound consistently or accurately, is that going to play into how they are learning to read and phonetics and you know phonics and all that? So. Yeah. I mean, it, it all kind of has this trickle down effect. Okay. So you've gone, I have to go here because this just is the bane of my existence right now. The tots. In my world, if you cut a tiny little piece of thing, it's going to fix instantly everybody's pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, which is literacy research articles. Oh my God. I just caused myself to have an eye twitch. The research is there to support that that is not what we are supposed to be doing. Yes. It may be clinically indicated in 15% of the cases or less. However, we're missing the greater aerodigestive allergic um, GI tract issues that are true underlying etiologies. That's a soapbox for like a 14 hour episode. But where does this trickle over to your world and does it make your eyelid twitch too? Oh my Lord, does it ever trickle? Yes. It doesn't trickle. I feel like there's a waterfall pouring into the pool of speech sound disorders. But here, so I think like what exactly what you're describing, it is much more complex than, oh, there's a tongue tie, let's cut it. It's so much more complex than that. And so what I here's the thing. I think sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater and think, oh, then it's not ever a thing for a child, which is not the case. Yes. For my bifurcated kid that had both halves cut down, tied down, that needed to be fixed. Holy cow. Yeah. So, I mean, can we use, here's my thing. I think it all boils down to people's ability to use clinical judgment. I feel like SLPs, and this is, a, this is probably another topic for another day, but I feel like we all want these canned therapy, give me a checklist. And no child can, you can't do a checklist therapy with a, with a child. That's why we have master's degrees and we're called pathologists. We're not technicians. We can't use a handbook and do effective therapy for every child. We have to spend time differentially diagnosing and we have to spend time understanding to what degree does that tongue tie contribute to that, that child's particular speech sound disorder. I've had kids come to me with, oh yeah, there's a tongue tie for sure. But guess what? Their speech sound disorder is phonological. It's not motoric. If I can teach them how to elevate their tongue tip for L and T and D, and they can do it, and I spend time doing that, then uh, that's not an issue for speech. It might be an issue maybe in other areas, like you said, in feeding. So you know that's why I get that case history to find out, are there other issues going on? Maybe I need to refer to a feeding specialist. But we have to think of it in terms of their specific speech sound disorder. And I will say, I've been doing, I've been doing this for 20, gosh, three years. Oh my God, you look amazing. Okay, continue. <laughs> okay, thank you. Filters. Um, but anyway, it's, <laughs> they're wonderful things, aren't they? I need a real life one. But, but listen, I have had, I have had, I would say a handful of kids that I felt for speech, I'm not talking any, cause that's my area, just the speech portion. We're not able to progress in therapy due to a restriction, a handful. There were a handful though. So I feel like we, we need to be aware and considerate 
but the fact that we're, you know, all on board with, oh my gosh, that, you know, that's, it always drives me nuts. And I do, I get that eye twitch on Facebook pages when, you know, mm-hmm. the first question asked is, do they have a tongue tie? And I thought, do they get it cut? And I'm like, yeah, sure. We got to look into their, ma- but you know, did you do a speech assessment? Did you analyze for phonological errors? Did you, you know, look at other aspects of the assessment? I just like, it's not the one and only thing and it's not a quick fix. And I would say really good orofacial myofunctional SLPs would agree with me that yes, you have to do a functional assessment to see if it's even a thing for that child. It may not be, right? Yes. I have had them on and they have said literally that. And then when I, oi to the vey, they say, um, Dr. Angela McLeod was on and she's brilliant. And full disclosure, she was my son's, my youngest son's um, speech pathologist for like from ever in a day. And because it was Dr. Angela McLeod. (laughs) That was like when he finally could talk, we got to the there. But um, now he's, you know, flying high and doing great. But, and she was like, look, she was like, it could be. She was like, but she was like, I'm more worried about like air digestive tract issues. And like, why are they holding their tongue in that anterior tongue thrust, like tip down position in the first place? And oftentimes it's hypertrophy of the adenoids. I mean, like enlarged palatine tonsils. I mean, there's so many other medical conditions that could have driven that like position, but that tiny piece of skin. So folks, long story short, Go dig into the research. Um, Please don't send us nasty things on the internet because this is frowned upon and we are supposed to choose kindness. But also tune in to the PFD track at ASHA this year because stay tuned. Beautiful things are happening there. Or you can see the webinars that came up from last year. I digress. Continue. Sorry, friend. (laughs) (laughs) But I completely agree with you. And I, I think that's where... But like what I said before, I think the issue is we want a quick fix. We want to, here's this checklist, here are these three things to do, and it's all fixed. And it's really, for most kids, it's going to be much more complicated than that. And, you know, but, you know, like I said, we have, we still identify it. I still tell parents, hey, guess what? I found this, you know, this shortened lingual frenulum. It's, it, you know, you might hear it called a tongue tie. I don't think it's necessarily impacting their speech. But you know what? If we go down the road and we've done um, a good deal of therapy, let's, you know, let's consider it. But I would say in my practice, I typically see it being an issue with my kids who have residual speech sound disorders like those you know, maybe they've had a phonological delay or disorder. They, you know, the, all their L's or W's, all their, you know, they're dropping S's and S clusters and, you know, they're clearly phonological, but sometimes those kids will have like a lisp, right? Or they'll have that residual R error where it's not, you know, the wabbit went down the street, it's the the lab. And I don't know if it's coming across over, you know, the podcast, but the wabbit land down the street where it's not a clear W you know, substitution, but it's like, man, their tongue is just not going where it needs to go for that R. And so sometimes I've seen it impact those kids more than others. And usually often I have found not because they physically can't move their tongue, but because they're compensating in an inefficient way to try to produce that sound. 
that isn't, and it comes out inaccurate. So often, even if they have a tongue tie, even if they have um, some myofunctional deficits there where, you know, there's a tongue thrust going on, I can still work on the speech portion and really help them be much more accurate in those target sounds. So, you know, again, kind of my soapbox, like look at the, the actual deficit of that child. Is it phonological? Is it motoric? And then decide, you know, how you need to address it. Can I just ask for clarifications? What's the difference between a derotorized R and a gliding? Because I could never tell the difference. <laughs> okay, so gliding will be, that is a phonological pattern. Phonological errors or phonological processes is kind of what we used to call them. Now we're kind of drifting towards error patterns. But so phonological errors are when it affects a class of sounds. So if a child has trouble with all liquids, like L's and R's, right? And they kind of all go to a W, right? Like the yellow, the yellow wabbit, right? The L's and the R's are both clear W's right there. That is gliding. There is a clear substitution of a W for an R and an L. It's affecting an, an entire class of sounds. But when we're talking about like deficits of those vocalic R's, right? That it's basically, it's a more of a motoric issue. This child knows that it's not a W, right? They know those kids with gliding, they don't often hear the difference. They said, yeah, I said wabbit. R no, say rabbit. Yeah, wabbit. That's what I said. They don't hear it, right? It's it's this deficit of, you know, sensory, sensory input of, are they hearing the difference? So we, our phonological interventions incorporate all that. We're incorporating auditory discrimination and we're incorporating understanding that, hey, this L, actually, when you say L with your tongue in this right spot, it actually changes the meaning of the word, right? If I say rest, that means I'm going to go to sleep. If I say west, that means maybe I'm a cowboy on a horse out in the desert. Now, that's a different thing. So we, so it's teaching that, but kids who are a little bit older tend to have more difficulty with, and tend to have more difficulty with R. It's definitely more of that articulation deficit with that, those pre-vocalic R's, those post-vocalic R's. And it'll sound like if you really tune your ear to it, it'll sound different. Like if I had a, um, a little guy, his name is Roger. And so it came out Lajo, not Wajo. Do you hear the difference? It's like lajo. La, I'm not, he wasn't using his lips. He wasn't saying W. His tongue was just low in his mouth. It wasn't getting up and back. He couldn't figure out where to put his tongue. And I think R is so tricky too, because there's not a clear point, a clear articulatory contact, right? Like, yes, that's what Bear said. He's like, I can't feel it. <laughs> I was like, I know, buddy. I know. Oh, I know. That's what I'm for. I help. I help you get that. But that's really the difference. They, you know, they know it's not a W. They know it doesn't sound like your R sound, but they can't figure out motorically where to put their tongue because, you know, you can teach T, right? You put your tongue tip right here and you pop the air off, right? You got it. So describe how to do R. Um, <laughs> you, your tongue is kind of back. And um, Dr. Jonathan Preston out of Syrac Syracuse did uh, an imaging study where they looked at how different people produced the R sound. And there were like five different movements. They were all a little bit different. Everybody kind of produces them a little bit differently. But there were five different movements that your tongue has to do in order to produce an R sound across the board. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of movement for your tongue. 
Give me a bolus and I am your girl. This is not my thing. But you know what? I do agree that we both agree cutting something probably is not going to fix the case in a majority of the cases. Go team. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Is there anything else on differential diagnosis that you want to cover or can we like jump into treatment? What would you prefer? We can totally jump into treatment, but I would say this too, because I, I always want to cover this. I do a whole six hour course on different, on a, basically speech sound disorders, but I always talk about when you do that Arctic test, when you do whatever you're doing, Goldman Fristo deep or whatever, don't just stop and look at all the different errors there, but go into and do an analysis. And I'm, I'm sure Michelle, this is not your wheelhouse anymore, <laughs> but But analyze it. Like, are there some patterns to what they're doing? And not all patterns are going to have a name necessarily. Maybe you find that, oh my gosh, this child has an H. He like produces H for like, you know, 15 different sounds. That's a pattern. And it's called a phoneme collapse. That child is collapsing all these other sounds to this easier to produce sound that they prefer or that they're drawn towards. So I would say spend more time during your Arctic test to analyze it for different patterns. Um, so that, you know, I could go on and on. I have, you know, I've got a whole recorded course about it, but that's, I would say, don't just stop at the Arctic, Arctic assessment, go and analyze it. See if you can find patterns in what they're substituting or what they're omitting. Mm. The closest thing that I can come is to that is like why we analyze a food log, like why we have a food log and analyze, okay, well, this was good foods. These were trouble foods. These were foods that like resulted in like an adverse reaction, choking, gagging, the whole nine yards, sour things happening out of their various tubes. Like I can translate. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So once upon a time I did treatment and it probably... You know, you get farther along in your career and you look back on like those first couple years of your career and you're like, oh, those poor patients. <laughs> like, you get that mortified feeling. You're like, oh, good Lord. Did I really do that? Yes. We've all been here. Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So like I'm having a lot of like bare bone reactions right now. Just thinking back like, ooh, that's not good. But, but what are your... For a person who's looking to start and they want to start out on the right track or and or maybe correct the error of their ways, take us down the treatment path, ma'am. Yeah. So I would say if you have done your due diligence with your assessment, you've gone through, you're like, okay, great. I think this kid's primary deficit is phonology. They've got, you know, six error patterns going on. They're gliding, they're reducing all their clusters, they're maybe the final consonant deletion. And you're like, that's pretty clear. That's a phonology kid, then know what your options are. And there are so many options when it comes to phonological intervention. Um, Probably the first one that I learned in graduate school or the first two that I think I learned was minimal pairs and minimal pairs. Oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah. So this is, that's the idea of, and really minimal pairs, I would say too, is probably overused because it's really meant for more or less severe Um, So more mild to moderate deficit. So maybe kids with just maybe two to three phonological error patterns going on. If they're really severe and they got a ton of patterns going on or they're super unintelligible, it's not going to be an efficient um, intervention, but it can be for those kids who are, you know, maybe they just have gliding, right? Or maybe they're, they just have one or two other errors going on, but it's the idea is you're drawing the contrast because again, this is phonology. This is not motor issue. This is phonology. This is understanding that 
when I put the W on this word, it means something different than when I have an R on this word. And so we kind of draw the contrast back to what their error is versus what the target is. So you always have these pairs you know, like I said before, rest, west, those are pairs. We're drawing the contrast between west and rest. And so that is a great option to teach some kids the idea that that sound actually changes the meaning of the word. And then, or there's like the cycles approach. That's another one that I learned from Dr. Hodson. And I use that. That's great for kids who are really highly unintelligible. And you might think, good grief, they have so many sounds that I need to address, how am I going to do that efficiently? And the cycles approach, you just, in a nutshell, you're cycling through. You don't spend time on one sound and wait for a certain criterion of accuracy before you move to the next. You just cycle through because the goal with that approach is to improve overall intelligibility. And you're just introducing all of these sounds that they don't quite have yet um, in order to improve their knowledge and use of phonology, of understanding that, oh, there's an S at the beginning of that word. Oh, there's an L at the beginning of this word. And so you kind of cycle through all the sounds and spend just a certain amount of time on one sound at a time in order to improve their overall intelligibility. So I think just kind of knowing your options. And there are so many, like, I, I mean, I could talk another couple hours just on phonological interventions because there's the complexity approach when it comes to deciding what sound do I pick? You know, it's like we can be super uh, strategic in how we choose our target sounds. Um, and that's just one way to do it. But I think understanding what your options are. So if you know this child has a phonological deficit, oh my gosh, please pick a phonological intervention. Because if you go what we, you know, that really traditional route of let's pick a sound they don't have and let's address it at the isolation level and then the syllable level and then the word level in different positions of the word and then phrase level and then sentence level. And if you're spending that much time on one sound for a child with a phonological deficit, you're not, you're missing the whole part of their deficit that is learning the rules for how to use that sound. So you're treating it from a motoric perspective rather than a phonological perspective, if that makes sense. It does. And I feel like you just better explain what I paid thousands of dollars to learn. So like, <laughs> okay. Yup. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's fine. We're fine. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We, we you know, we uh, do better when we know better. I mean, trust me, I'm not going to pick up our tick phonology treatment tomorrow. I'm comfortable with my wheelhouse and expanding that said wheelhouse. But like, at least I'll be able to like recognize some of the differences. <laughs> yeah, if you stay away from speech uh, sound disorders, I will stay away from all <laughs> the feeding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> deal. Dear God, deal. <laughs> Never going to do that. I had Craig Coleman on a couple years ago talking about stuttering. And I remember once I tried really hard with this kid. I was the only SLT in the area and like couldn't get into anywhere else. And like, I made it worse. Like, I know that I did. <laughs> like, Isn't that, I mean, my gosh, our, but our scope of practice is so ridiculously huge that how can you expect to know all the things about all the things, right? I know. I really wish we like added a third year on like PTD and like OTD. And then you could pick, you could say either I'm going to finish with my master's or I'm going to go get that extra year, but like hyper-focus in like the thing that you want, you know, but like that would be fun if I ran the world, ta-da. 
Yeah, right. One day. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'd also make college free, but like that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so like, okay. All right. Continue with this tr- with the treatment strategies. I'm, as I'm sitting here, like eating humble pie. I love it. But listen, I mean, honestly, I, I did all these same things too. I treated every, you know, I treated so many kids from that articulation point of view where you're like, okay, well, they have trouble with ST, you know, you have their 25 different letters that there are sounds that they're having trouble producing and you, you just kind of go down through the list, right? But it's just inefficient if you do have a child with like a phonological deficit. And I have to say too, if you have a child that truly, and here we go again with the differential diagnosis, but truly does have apraxia, neither one of those approaches is going to be effective. <laughs> what do you do? Then what do you do? I know, right? So here's what you do. What we know is a child has difficulty with movement of speech, has to practice movement of speech. And so it's not about non-speech oral motor exercises. Uh, oh, oh, there's a fun one for you. <laughs> Are we going to go down that rabbit hole? Oh, honey, go, baby, go. Run, rabbit, run. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, do not get me started on that. But, you know, okay, yeah, anyway. <laughs> okay, wait, no, I need a two-minute segue on that. How do you feel about those four speech sound acquisitions? Okay, here's my two-minute segue. And I'm again, I'm talking speech, right? I would say if you're using any kind of exercise, and I'm using my air quotes again, can you directly relate that back to the particular speech task you want that child to learn? No. Right. (laughs) And if you can't, then why are you doing it? I don't know. I saw my friend do it. It looked cool. Sorry. I had the oral motor cards in, you know, I got out of school and here's our oral motor cards. Let's warm up our tongue. Let's do our tongue wags and round our lips and And I go back and think, oh gosh, I wasted so much time with those kids. Because if we want to learn how to do a speech task, we have to practice speech. Wait, who is that? Is that Loth? Yes, Greg Loth. Yep. Loth crushed it in the Asha Leader. Yes. Yes. But I want to say this too. And this is, this kind of is similar to my tongue tie explanation. I would say like, if you're, and I've even heard Dr. Edith Strand talk about this, the apraxia guru, like, look, why are you using that? horn to get lip rounding? Or why are you using the horn, right? If you're doing it to like, well, we're going to strengthen the lip muscles to, in order to, you know, carry over to overall generalized improvement in in speech, that's not a thing that doesn't work. But if you're using some kind of a device like a horn in order to get lip rounding for the ooh sound, then okay, get the horn in their lips, round their lips, and then pull the horn out and have them try to keep their lips round for ooh while you're doing an actual speech task. So I don't think like, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, like, oh my gosh, I can never use any exercises like to round lips. Well, if you're using it in the context of speech, speech practice, like we're trying to get this child to say, ooh, and all they're doing is, uh, and they're not rounding their lips at all. And you're like, okay, well, if I put this little horn in their lips, they round it. But let's immediately make it a speech task. Like, let's turn your voice on. Let's say, ooh, let's try to remove that device or whatever, the horn immediately so that they don't have to rely on it. Right. But again, this goes into that, like, there's no checklist of here's this name brand therapy that you're going to do to improve this, you know, every child's speech. I'm just, I'm not about the name brand interventions. I'm about like, look at the, if you can't identify with that little task and how it's specifically going to improve their ability to produce this speech goal, then don't do it. 
Because for one thing, if you're thinking, well, it's just going to strengthen their muscles. We don't need a lot of strength for muscles. We don't have, we don't need a lot of strength in order to produce accurate speech. We need agility of movement. And so with, so there's my two little spiel. That would be Dr. Georgia Malandrecki with Purdue IE Eats Lab talking about mastication patterns for our children that have cerebral palsy. And it turns out mastication patterns, the rotary chew does not have to be fully evolved until they're 12 years of age. We can chuck it with the whole, it has to be in place by four years of age and da, 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 because it doesn't. And if you want to learn to eat, you must learn to eat. Otherwise you learn a movement pattern in isolation, but not how to accurately control, manipulate the bolus and or the differing textures and viscosities. But I digress. So it's a completely different neurological pathway, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. And so that kind of plays into apraxia. So if you're, if you want a child with apraxia to produce accurate movement for speech, we have to practice the movement during speech. So when you have a child with apraxia, what, some of the things that we have to think about are, what are we working on really, right? We're not going to work on a speech sound like we would with a child with a lisp or an R error. We're not going to work on patterns because these kids are inconsistent, right? They Maybe they might have some phonological patterns too. And that goes into that realm of mixed speech sound disorders, because rarely do our kids fall into just one, you know, nice little, you know, category of, oh, they're only apraxia or they're only phonology or they're only articulation. But with a child who has apraxia, we have to practice accurate movement, which we need to choose some functional words to work on with that child because we're practicing the movement from sound to sound and syllable to syllable. So that's what we need to be considering you know, like when we're doing target selection for our kids, target selection is so important for kids with apraxia because we have to use sounds that are already in their repertoire. We're not going to work. If they don't have, you know, the S sound, we're not going to write a goal for the S sound. We're going to write a goal for some words that we're going to work on using sounds that are already in their repertoire because I know they can produce those sounds. So let's help them produce those sounds into word movements, basically a movement to create a word. So that's, it's just a kind of a different shift, paradigm shift when it comes to treatment for kids with apraxia. And again, that's like, I mean, we could literally talk for hours on each one of these things <laughs> that we're talking about. I was about to say, and when are you coming back? Cause we're doing this again. <laughs> Anytime. But you can see how, like, if you do your due diligence with your assessment and you've done some analysis, oh my gosh, you're going to treat each of these kids very differently. And so, you know, whether a child is primarily apraxic or primarily phonological or primarily, you know, articulation, you're going to treat all of those differently. And so it's so important to differentially diagnose because your assessment options are going to be, you know, for one thing, it opens up a whole new world of learning when it comes to different interventions. And there's so many places to go to learn about this. But, you know, we have to match the intervention to the deficit. If you had a room full of newbie SLPs, and you could just say, just please consider doing this and not this on like, that's a very hard question because I don't know how I would answer that. But I mean, we do, we have the plethora of CFs that are entering our field. It's astronomical comparative to, dare I say, when you and I were entering the field. <laughs> Many back in the 1900s. Back in the day. Oh my God, my goose said that to me. He goes, 
mom, you were born in the 1900s. And I was like, you just lost your allowance. He was like, you don't give me an allowance. And I was like, you're right. But if you did, you wouldn't have it. <laughs> so like, sorry. Oh man, I left so hard. I almost peed. Okay. <laughs> Back in the 1900s. Okay. Yes. But what advice would you give? Oh my gosh. It's such a hard question, but I would say it's a good question, but it's a hard question to answer. I would say stay up to date on the literature that's coming out. Ooh, where do you go? What are your favorite resources? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I would say know who the names are and know who the researchers are, know who the trusted sources are in your preferred, you know, specialty area. But if you don't yet, I subscribe to the informed SLP. I think it is a fantastic way to kind of get bite-sized information because I don't know about you, but I don't have time to sit and read journal articles very often. And so, and often when I do, I'm going, wait, what does, I don't understand. The words are different than I'm used to, you know, it's just very, you know, researchies. Um, and so they help break it down. They have specialist PhDs that go and they read the literature and they, they summarize it for you and can tell you how it can be clinically relevant. So I think that's one way to do it. I will probably always subscribe to the informed SLP, um, just to stay up to date on the literature. So that I would say that's one thing, just kind of know who the names are, because often, um, the experts in the field are not the ones developing the really expensive name brand interventions that you see a lot. <laughs> so don't fall into the trap of no, I'm not and I'm not saying any particular one is not even good. Like I think there can be, uh, you know, some fantastic information or techniques that you can glean from any, you know, name brand intervention, but but know who the well-known and respected as <laughs> I was going for respected names are in the field and just kind of follow them. You know, with social media now, oh my gosh. We can actually, you know, follow, like Kelly, Dr. Kelly Farquharson is class lab FSU, right? I follow her. She's fantastic to follow. It's such a great account. Um, know who to follow and follow them. Yes. Wait, let me caveat this with, I do not know a highly respected researcher that posts, um, what is it? The reels? Yeah. <laughs> so please be cautious of a professional advice delivered via dance marathon. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, maybe the researchers are going to get with it and they will. You never If they do, I salute you. But also, okay, so the last year I had the pleasure of sitting on the inaugural ASHA PFD planning committee for the very first PFD track, right? And I'm doing it again this year for ASHA 2022 in New Orleans. Um, for the PFD track. I cannot tell you the amount of work that goes into each respective planning committee to select the quote unquote master clinician classes. So I would highly recommend that if you want to learn from the greats, then pursue the master courses that ASHA offers you. But that's And what they do is they try to do a beginner clinician one and then like a seasoned clinician one. Trust me, because we do that a lot. Yes. So that's just, there's my soapbox. Continue. I'm so sorry. 
No, I, I completely agree. And I would say if you can go to ASHA, that's where you make those connections and you start to see, you know, the researchers. And I'm, I'm actually on the Speech Sound Disorders Committee this year planning for, you know, in, inviting speakers for New Orleans. So I'll be there too. But just, you know, go to ASHA. Oh my gosh, go to ASHA. Such a great, it's such a great place. That's, that's just where you're, where you're going to see so much, not just the research, but also the clinically applicable um, sessions too. We're trying to get more of those in this year. So yeah, definitely. I totally agree with you on that. And one of my favorite resources is I'm join a SIG, join a special interest group. Like I'm a member of SIG 13 and I can post a question on SIG 13 and know that I'm going to get a legit answer because the greats in our field answer it. Also, that's a safe forum that's monitored. So if somebody posts a flippant response or a disrespectful response, or it doesn't have evidence to back it up, then it doesn't get like, it's not allowed. Right. But if you post a question on the land of the Facebook. Oh, I was just going to say that would, maybe that should be my number one. (laughs) Yes. Go for it. Be very wary of Facebook groups, (laughs) even SLP Facebook groups, be very wary of the advice that you get. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And if you're looking for a really good Instagram account to follow, I personally recommend Round Boys. It is nothing but fluffy, fuzzy, circular, spherical shaped animals. <laughs> so like if I'm you need it up right now. <laughs> it's the greatest thing. Their dogs are so fat that they can't even go up and down the stairs because they're a sphere. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. My I have a very joyful Instagram feed. I love it. Okay. All right. I have to do a shout out really quickly before I ask you the next question to Ryan Murphy, who I posted this amazing picture of the fact that I, you and I were recording right now. And she totally straight up geeked out because I was geeking out and she goes, Oh my God, it's Amy Graham. And I was like, I know. Right. So, um, Ryan Murphy. Oh my God, it's Amy Graham. <laughs> so like, just have to. I love it. Yes. But um, okay. If folks want to learn more from you, where do they go? Tell me all the things. Okay. So all the things you can find all the things on my website, grahamspeechtherapy.com. Like it's spelled like the cracker, G-R-A-H-A-M. And I am primarily though, I would say I'm definitely most active on Instagram. So it's at Graham Speech Therapy. And I post weekly therapy videos, weekly therapy tips. Um, I have a question of the day in my stories where I pick one because I was getting so many questions, I couldn't get to them all. So I thought I'm just going to do it every day and then just pick one question and answer it regarding speech sound disorders. So that's where I'm most active. Um, But I also have a Facebook page too. You just won't see quite as many videos there because I can't categorize them and save them as well as on Instagram. It's such a perfect platform for SLPs. Um, on Instagram, but that's primarily where I am. I kind of have a baby YouTube channel. And again, if you just search Graham speech therapy, I will probably pop up. (laughs) Yeah, she does. It's kind of cool like that. Okay. So everybody that's out there, make sure you follow us on first bite podcast on Instagram. You can find us at first bite Facebook page and Aaron and I love it when you, um, send messages. Truth be told, it's either Aaron and I answering because we like take turns. Thank God there's two of us. Um, and she signs with an E and I sign with an M. So ta-da, <laughs> mystery solved. <laughs> but um, 
And uh, just remember, you can catch show notes over at speechtherapypd.com for this episode. And we love it when you hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a review of joyful good news. So everybody out there, I dare say that Amy and I would love to see you at ASHA in New Orleans. So we'll see you in a couple of months. But uh, Amy, hold on one second. I'm going to switch this over, okay? Also, thank you so much for coming on. It's the Amy Graham. Oh, my God. Okay, hang on. (laughs) Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary.
I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.